0: Welcome to the Love Evolved podcast. This is Leanne and I'm a psychologist and relationship coach living in Los Angeles. I wanna welcome you today to a very special episode number 30 with a guest named Dr. George Simon. He's an expert at character disordered individuals, having specialized in this topic for over 40 years now. And we focus on the rise of narcissism and other character disorders. What has caused this to become such a problem? And we talk about what we can do about it both in terms of treating these character disordered individuals and also protecting ourselves from getting manipulated, taken advantage of, and even abused by them. And so I invited Dr. Simon onto the podcast because I realized recently when I did the math that about 80% of my clients over the past year have been caught up in one way or another in the empath-narcissist trap. And while I knew that more and more people were coming to me for this reason, even I was surprised at how high of a number that was. And so I really feel like this is one of the most important episodes that I've recorded because it speaks to so many misconceptions that good-hearted people have about these types of individuals and why we end up attracting them and getting taken advantage of. Dr. Simon and I speak about so many of these commonly held beliefs that just are not true about character disordered individuals, such as this idea that everyone is basically good inside with good intentions, and if they display bad behavior, they must somehow be hurt or traumatized underneath the surface. And while that's certainly true some of the time, It's not true all of the time, and this is one assumption that really allows you to be taken advantage of by people who do not have your best interest in mind, and they often know exactly what they're doing. And so we're going to dive right into this episode. I can't wait for you to listen, and if you need support, please reach out. I work with people all over the world. So before we dive into our conversation, I just wanna share a formal bio for Dr. George Simon. He is the leading expert on manipulators and other disturbed characters. He earned his degree in clinical psychology at Texas Tech University and has studied disturbed characters for over 42 years. He's the author of five bestselling books, including In Sheep's Clothing, Character Disturbance, The Judas Syndrome, and a couple of others. I'm going to link all of his books in the show notes. And Dr. Simon is not only an author, but a public speaker, consultant, professional trainer, and composer who has appeared on numerous national, regional, and local TV and radio programs. He's also the host of a weekly internet program called Character Matters. So make sure you check the show notes for links to his website, blog, and all of his books. I highly recommend all of his work, and I have recommended In Cheap's Clothing and Character Disturbance to hundreds of people, all of my clients, and they certainly were very eye-opening for me as well and have allowed me to better support my clients. And so if you're someone who falls in this category, a very empathic, compassionate person who sometimes gets taken advantage of, this episode is for you. So I hope you find our conversation today as useful as I did. And as always, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have questions or you need support, the links are in the show notes. Dr. Simon, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that you said yes to this invitation.
1: Good to meet you. I'm so happy to be with you today.
0: Well, the first question that I would love to ask you is, so what got you interested? What made you specialize in character disturbance?
1: What got me started was two things, primarily. I was seeing a number of folks in my clinical practice, my therapy practice, who were in relationships with disturbed characters. And these folks were using techniques to manipulate um, that were inducing what Commonly, we call these days the gaslighting effect. We didn't have a commonly agreed upon term for it back in the day that I was observing it, but I I observed that some of my clients were telling me how crazy they felt because they just knew there's something wasn't right with uh, their relationship partner, but somehow that person made him feel like they were the problem or that they had it all wrong, uh, had them doubting their perceptions of reality, maybe even doubting their sanity. And they also couldn't figure out why this person who they'd come to know is not such a good person Uh, made such a favorable impression on others, where everybody else seemed to like them, and that made them feel even weirder. Uh, And so I was seeing an increasing number of these folks uh, in my practice. And uh, on occasion, when I would do joint sessions or when I would encounter other folks, I realized that more and more people were having problems, not so much because of their unresolved emotional conflicts or past trauma or uh, feelings that they had suppressed or repressed, but rather because they hadn't really developed a sound moral character yet. And they uh, hadn't internalized a, a, a decent conscience. And so they were doing all kinds of things to not just mess up their own lives, but mess up the lives of everybody around them, especially their intimate relationship partner. And I quickly found out that none of the things that I was taught to do to help worked. Right. And so... Being the kind of person that doesn't like to, I don't like to waste time or energy. (laughs) And I hate to feel, I hate to feel uh, that what I do has no positive value. So (laughs) I quickly had to do a lot of research and a lot of uh, inventive stuff uh, to find a way to actually help. And that's what inspired my first book, In Sheep's Clothing. Uh, I started cataloging the tactics that folks with character disturbances like to use to get the better of others, to make them doubt, to uh, get their way in covert fashion. And um, the rest, shall we say, is, is history, even though we didn't have uh, a name that was commonly uh, used by other clinicians. That we we now use the term gaslighting, even though we weren't commonly using that uh, term. Uh, which, by the way, was the number one looked up word and used term uh, all last year was gaslighting. Number, yeah, I, know, I, <laughs> I never heard that. But right from the beginning, introduction of the book where I described the phenomenon, that feeling crazy, because you just know something's not right, but they have you thinking there's something wrong with you, or that you don't get it right. As as soon as people started reading that, uh, just kind of all hell broke loose, basically. I mean, the letters just kind started, started pouring in, and the appearances started coming and all like that because it was a very real thing that I'd stumbled upon.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. So that was back in 1996, right? right. Was so that's a long time ago. And so, ago, yeah. yeah. And so, thank you for sharing. Also, that your 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 background and your training didn't really prepare you to treat and work with these kind of people. And so what did you do differently? What What did you, where did you go? Did, did you use a combination of what you were seeing with clients or were, were there other people that were writing about this? How did you uh, Yes,
1: yeah, there were other people, but boy, they, they didn't have the notoriety they do today. And they didn't have um, the acceptance that they do today. You know, Robert here in Canada was doing pioneer research. Stanton Samenow, who was working in the uh, prison systems uh, and in other areas of law enforcement, he was making discoveries. And uh, he and uh, Yakelson had done some landmark work on the criminal personality. And with all character disturbed individuals, whether they be narcissists or any of the groups that I call the aggressive personalities, the antisocial types, sociopathic types, psychopathic types, all these folks have a lot of features in common. And all the features that they do have in common are radically different from your average garden variety, what we call neurotic individual who was struggling with way too much much anxiety. So what I started to do is I started to catalog the stark differences between these two groups of people, the folks that are, for a lack of a better word, to, to, to one degree or another, kind of neurotic, uh, excessively harsh on themselves, um, maybe overactive conscience, they wanna do everything right, they make themselves sick with worry, I started listing their characteristics and the the reasons why our traditional psychotherapy methods work with them, um, and then comparing those characteristics with these character-impaired people and why the approaches tailor-made for neurotic individuals can't possibly work with character-disturbed people. And once I did that, the road was very clear to what needed to happen to make life better for both for both the victims of these kinds of folks, the survivors of these kinds of toxic relationships, and the people who needed to really get their act together, who really needed to grow in character in order to be decent people. And uh, so the way became clear.
0: Yeah, I I thank you for sharing about that, because that was one of the big aha moments for me when I read your book is that you explained so beautifully how traditional psychotherapy, um, you know, rooted in maybe Freud's time was... um, in response to a certain type of person, which is more neurotic, as you just described, but it didn't train people to deal with more character disordered folks, right? And so these are, would you say that these two types of people are on um, opposite ends of a spectrum?
1: Opposite ends of a spectrum. And of course, very few persons are at either extreme, but and most folks fall somewhere along the continuum there. But really they are different poles of a spectrum and the characteristics are different and the means of intervention has to be different. And what I learned very, very quickly is that my colleagues at first, they couldn't accept what the findings were. They couldn't, it wasn't just my findings, but all the other researchers who were beginning to say the same thing uh things are very slow to change sometimes in various fields we get we get too married to our metaphors I like to say we get very we think we know what we're doing even though things are changing <laughs> and we're we're slow to adapt these days uh I I not only don't get resistance like I used to but I get a lot of uh shall we say, uh, nods from the amen corner. I mean, uh, a lot of the things that were radical 40 years ago are very commonly accepted now, um, including understanding how these character disordered people operate, what's different about them. Still, unfortunately, I have to say that too many people write me to say that they experienced what we call uh, iatrogenic or therapy-induced trauma where they managed somehow to cajole their uh, toxic relationship partner into a co-therapy session um, only to feel worse for the effort because maybe the therapist just didn't get it about how they were genuinely duped and victimized and maybe found fault even with them. Uh, you know, what's your part in this? Well, really nothing. You know, I, I'm a kind of decent person. <laughs> this other person isn't. Um, so maybe they felt um, maligned in some way. Uh, and then the other thing that can happen is maybe their uh partner is really skilled in the art of impression management. Uh, Maybe they have good manipulative skill and bamboozled the therapist and then uh, formed an alliance against them. Oh, my goodness. Um, So, I mean, unfortunately, too often, even still, even with the awareness we have, people will go for help and they'll write me to say, you know, I wish I hadn't done it because some folks still just don't get it.
0: Yes. And I do see that in popular culture right now with, and also with this kind of romanticization of trauma and everybody must have trauma. And I mean, you know, in some respects, it's obviously a good place to understand that, but it's almost gone to the other extreme now where you assume everybody has trauma. Right. And, and so one of uh, another big Um, breakthrough for me with your work was the understanding that not everybody necessarily has um, a background of trauma that causes this to happen. But I do see now that a lot of people are making that assumption, not just people in the field, but also just lay people Um, in pop culture. They assume, you know, this this phrase hurt people hurt people. Well, it's, it's certainly sometimes true. It's not always true. And I do see that that's something that is causing a lot of problems because, yeah, sometimes it's just bad behavior and you just have to call it what it is.
1: Right. You know, Freud famously said that the heart of all the pathology was that he was seeing was overgeneralization. And by that, he meant a person gets into a situation, say, with a relationship partner. And there are some aspects of that partner that remind them of their bad relationship, say, with their father or their mother, and they overgeneralize, and they say, "Ah, there it is again. There's that same thing again, Uh, when in fact, maybe that person has some characteristics similar, but not quite. So, there's real danger in overgeneralization, and we still do it, unfortunately. We make those sweeping statements, yes, Sometimes really deeply hurt people do hurt people. Sometimes spoiled little brats hurt people too. (laughs) Spoiled privileged brats who who experienced no hurt whatsoever, (laughs) who had everything going and found no reason to grow up. Sometimes they hurt people too. So when we paint with those broad brushes, we're almost always setting ourselves up for intervention, failure.
0: Right, right. Okay. And this actually leads me into a question that I was thinking about, which is, ha- has this dynamic always existed over time between, you could say, ne- the neurotic and the character disordered people that maybe, um, especially in romantic relationships, are kind of pulled together? Um, or as I'm kind of using the empath and the narcissist, has this dynamic existed Historically, or is this a newer thing that has popped up?
1: It's always existed. What's growing is the prevalence of character dysfunction at a level that makes wholesome relationships more difficult than ever. Uh, A classic insidious, vicious cycle has been churning for about seven or eight decades now. As aspects of the culture, as traditions, institutions, uh, and structures within the uh, culture and environment, as they started to become corrupted and started to break down, it fostered more and more uh, character disturbance, more and more individuals who came into young adulthood not properly morally grounded and not very well uh, put together in their overall character. And as that happened, as more and more character impaired people populated the society, what institutions and structures were less that were, uh, were left, that were designed to foster character development became increasingly more corrupted. So as the culture erodes more character impaired people, More character impaired people populating the culture, it erodes even further. And that cycle has been churning now for several decades. So it's always been with us. But the statistics, I mean, they don't lie. Relationships don't hold together anymore. We can't trust each other anymore. We're as divided as we have ever been at every single level, not just politically. And that's way out of hand. And what happens in that insidious kind of slowly churning vicious cycle is we become desensitized so that all manner of what used to be considered unbelievable or outrageous, all manner of behavior that was so rare or or just completely repulsive has become the new normal. Yeah. And nobody's shocked anymore. By just about anything.
0: Right. I know. And I see this rise of moral relativism coming up where there's, you know, you can't call it bad or good, right? You can't call it evil. Right. It's it's like we're so hesitant to um label certain things what they are, and you know, in the name of maybe trying to be more accepting or inclusive of whatever goes. But I've seen it really creating a lot of problems,
1: just like you're saying. This is what character disordered people love the most about neurotics. They love our conscientiousness. They love the fact that we will bend over backwards to understand, that we will always give the benefit of the doubt, that we'll pick up the pieces, we'll clean up the mess. If if I'm an exploiter, I want the person with a conscience. Yes. Yes. Because that's what I can exploit. I can exploit the fact that they want to believe the best, that they want to do the best, that they try so hard. I love that. That's so easy to take advantage of.
0: Yeah. And I think we also live in a world, too, where people that do have kind, open hearts and care about other people uh, you know, in a perfect world, maybe we wouldn't get taken advantage of. But the reality is that we live in a world where people do actually take advantage and manipulate people. And so that alone, for some people listening, will be a big wake up call, that not everybody is is good at their core. Not everyone has good intentions. Is that what you also see as well?
1: Yes. And, um, you know, we're hesitant to make those judgments. But, you know, in toxic relationships, inevitably, that comes that point where the person starts to get clued in, and they start to realize that the person they were involved in is just not who they initially thought they were or who they made themselves out to be, and that there are serious uh, flaws in their moral character But if that person is also good at the art of impression management and uses the manipulation tactics that I outline in my books, well, uh, they can still doubt themselves. So it usually takes a whole heck of a lot of pain to finally say, you know what, (laughs) I'm done here. I'm just done. Uh, But it usually takes a lot for that to happen.
0: Right. And I I mean, I certainly have been through that in my own life, just having to learn lessons the hard way. And I wish it wasn't that way for everybody. I wish we could learn our lessons before we have to crash and burn sometimes. But, you know, it's interesting, this whole thing about judgment and um, kind of talking along the lines of what I was just sharing with the moral relativism and all of this stuff. There's this attitude of, of, you know, we can't judge other people. Like, Don't don't judge people. And I see that actually people who are more neurotic need to actually start to judge people a little bit more because they're not at all. And so they lack discernment in terms of being able to tell, um, like you say, the character of somebody. Right. And so how do you actually develop that skill to be able to start to discern?
1: Yeah, well, our culture has made it harder than ever. You know, we used to have, the, at one time, a lot of extended family support and a lot of extended uh, social circle support. Uh, When it came to people um, getting into either a marriage relationship or a serious intimate relationship, they could count on friends or family to help them do an awful lot of vetting. Because um, this was serious business. You know, um, it wasn't frivolous, (laughs) as it seems to have become. You know, well, if it doesn't work out, well. So it was serious business. And because it was serious business, um, there was a heck of a lot of vetting that needed to go on. What kind of history does this person have? What kind of background do they come from? Uh, What was their family like? What what were their values? How how did they live up to them? Uh, What kinds of stuff is in the family tree, et cetera, et cetera? People actually cared about that stuff at one time. And there was a payoff to that. There's a payoff to that in that even though it's no guarantee, certainly no guarantee, uh, it increased the chances that you were entering a relationship that it had at least the promise of healthy growth and increased intimacy and mutual support and all that, all the things that we just naturally long for in a relationship. Yeah. Sadly, today uh, we are too quick to um, we are too quick to to take things at face value and to not uh, dig too deeply and to not do enough vetting, Uh, you know, we will accept, for example, the fact that, oh, yeah, I've been married twice before, but she was just, oh, or he was just, uh, you know, and just accept that, you know, it certainly wasn't my fault. I didn't have anything to do with it. (laughs) And just accept that, uh, as opposed to kind of scrutinizing the situation and saying, you know what, this is already a two-time loser. (laughs) Now, it could be just bad luck. It could be. Well, chances are, probably not. So maybe I need to be careful here. Maybe I need to walk slowly. Maybe I need to pay real close attention, look for things, look for signs, you know. Am I being Mm -hmm. love-bombed? And and, am I being love-bombed pretty intensely where it makes me feel uncomfortable? Um, Then I have to ask myself the question, why so much, so hard, so fast, you know? What's going on here with this two- or three-time loser?
0: (laughs) hey, right. right. yeah and and just and trusting your intuition and to trusting be able to your do their, do their words match match their actions, you know that's another really good one. and so yes, using bringing in discernment and 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 actually judging people's character. this is a protective. Way for people who might get caught in these types of relationships. So we'll talk more later about I kind of skipped ahead a little bit um, in terms of other things that you can do to sort of protect yourself, but I wanted to just circle back just a little bit to this trend of um, you know, the rise of people with character disorders and why it's happening. And for for me as a parent, what I see is Parenting styles, uh, I believe, have an impact on this. When with the swing from authoritarian to more permissive parenting styles, do you see that this is a factor? Yes.
1: Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, the old adage is correct. It does take a village. Uh, it's, of course, crucial that there be an intact family, and a family that's uh, and a parents that have good moral grounding themselves so that they know how to instill the proper values in their children. But it takes a lot of reinforcement and support from the community around too. That's why some parents are homeschooling. Not all parents who homeschool do it for that reason, but that's why some parents are doing it, because they feel all alone in the enterprise they don't feel like they have enough community support worse they feel that some of the values that their children are exposed to in the community are at odds with the moral foundation that they're trying to lay down for their children so it's it's tough and this has happened to us so slowly and so incrementally and so insidiously That it's no longer possible, I don't think, to really tell how far off course we've become. Sometimes you can get so lost that you don't know how lost you are because you've lost all reference points. I think that's where we are right now. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote my latest book, Essentials for the Journey. It was originally titled The Ten Commandments of Character, which, as you know, is a chapter in the book, uh, Character Disturbance. And uh, a lot of people were asking me to write it. But the reason I wrote Essentials for the Journey is because the only way we're going to turn things around is the same way we got here. And that is one heart at a time, mm-hmm. slowly, incrementally, beginning with our own you know we make ourselves one less character disturbed person in the pool <laughs> and slowly incrementally we change the culture that spawned all of this sense of entitlement relativism permissiveness anything goes ambiguity
0: right yeah i to- i really agree with that and i've seen also um You know, thankfully with my background in psychology, I was well aware of all the research in terms of parenting styles from authoritarian to permissive, right? These are on, on two ends of a spectrum. And then the middle way, the authoritative approach, which is kind of the best of both with loving care for your child, you set boundaries and limits with them. Right. And, and it's not either end of the extreme. And so I feel like so many of, um, You know, my son is older now, but especially when he was younger, we would see these parents who would just let their children kind of uh, make all the decisions and just run over them. And in the name of, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, cause any harm, right? But then it's backfiring, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the popular psychology of the 70s and 80s did more damage than I care to count. That I care to enumerate. A lot of damage. Um, and uh, we're only now beginning to come to our senses. I worked for years with some of the most seriously disturbed characters. And I know from experience what made the difference for those few, and there are some. There are some individuals who came to a point in their life where they realized what a mess they were and how much damage they had caused. And there was at least enough decency within them to want to be better. And I know what made the difference with those folks. And many of the things that made the difference were the things that popular psychology in the 70s and 80s uh, was saying didn't make a difference. For example, in the popular psychology, we were taught that shame is always toxic, that it's okay to feel guilty about what you do, that it's okay to um, cast dispersions upon behavior and to say that's wrong, basically. But it was never a good idea to make a person feel bad about who they are. That's always toxic. Well, is there such thing? And once again, we have this overgeneralization. And is there such a thing as toxic shame? Well, absolutely. Can a person's whole self-image be uh, messed up because of unreasonable uh, shame? Absolutely. But to a person, to a person, all the people that made meaningful changes in their lives didn't do so out of a sense of guilt over what they had done. I know people who have felt badly after every drunken rage where they beat the crap out of their relationship partner, but it didn't stop them from doing it again. It was only when they took that look in the mirror and no longer liked the person that they saw, when the very way they had chosen to define themselves as a person was no longer acceptable to them. Shame did for them what guilt never could do. We've been so wrong about so many things, and that's one of the reasons people have had such difficulty in their relationships and getting better. The one thing we did right is we knew how to treat overly neurotic people. We got that right. On just about everything else, we've been wrong, and not just a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. And and yes, because that is really powerful what you say about shame. That's part of another reason why we've gotten ourselves into this mess. And I love John Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame that Binds You. He talks about the difference between toxic toxic shame and healthy shame and how healthy shame is actually such a powerful internal way to guide you morally.
1: Yes, to grow. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so now I feel like we live in a culture where it's not okay to feel any shame at all, which is like you said. Are you
1: shaming me? Are you yes. shaming?
0: <laughs> you know, right, right. Like, exactly,
1: well, exactly. You might be a little shaming.
0: <laughs> that's that's a powerful thing for people to just sit with. Is that not all shame is bad? There yeah. is shame exists for a reason. It is a very powerful internal shaper of our behavior. You yeah. know, um,
1: and as a matter so, of fact, it's diagnostic. If there's any one characteristic that defines the more malignant narcissist. And that's well, that's a whole topic right there, because narcissism comes in many different shades and forms. But the most malignant narcissists, there's one particular thing that defines them most accurately, and that is shamelessness. And you can witness it. You, you can witness the shock on people's faces. When they witness shameless behavior, something so egregious, and the person does it without any compunction, without any apparent regard for how it looks, um, that shamelessness alone is diagnostic for the worst kind of narcissist. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it definitely correlates to, to this lack of a conscience that some people don't really, um, again, that I just feel like sometimes I want to give people a little bit of a wake up call that there are certain people that actually lack Conscience, and so we need to we need to just be aware of this. And so, you know, what what do you think would be most helpful for people in terms of um, talking about narcissism? I was going to ask about maybe some of the common tactics that narcissists use, or would you prefer to talk about the different types of narcissists?
1: I blog a lot about the different types because there's so much misinformation out there these days. Most of it is correct as far as it goes, but once again, the broad brush is used. Narcissist this, narcissist that. Well, narcissism is another one of those spectrum phenomenons, and it varies as to both type and degree. There are some narcissists who are actually relatively amiable and relatively benign. And then there are those narcissists that would cut your heart out and not think twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So to say, to, 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 to that, that broad brush is such a problem. <laughs> and, you know, it was only, I, I stopped doing on the road workshops about four years ago, uh, just before COVID struck. But um, all during the time that I was doing workshops during that 11-year period when I was really uh, out there doing a lot, a lot of workshops, um, in the early days of those workshops, the uh, official uh, diagnostic manual uh, of the American Psychiatric Association, the folks working uh, on that were actually considering removing narcissistic personality disorder from the manual. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Because it was thought to be so hard to define, and some were even thinking it was a false construct. Mm. Well, there was such an outcry. (laughs) There was (laughs) such an outcry that they didn't take it out. And now we're at the complete other end of the spectrum, where everybody's a narcissist. (laughs) Everybody who's a narcissist has these same exact characteristics. No. No, neither one of those things is right. It's not true that there are no narcissists. And no, it's not true that every narcissist does the exact same thing. It's not true.
0: Right. Well, I think, you know, and I I will direct people to your books and to your blog all day long to really get into, uh, you know, more in depth that we can cover today on this podcast. But, you know, if you can think about maybe some of the character traits um, that you've written about in sheep's clothing and character disturbance that, you know, people like us could, that maybe are more prone or vulnerable to getting taken advantage of, what are some of the tactics that we can sort of uh, keep our eyes out for?
1: Well, the two biggest ones are guilting and shaming. Those are the two biggest ones, because if, if I know you have a conscience and if I know you're conscientious and I want you to do as I say, Then the easiest thing, and by the way, character disordered people hate to work. So they're always going to take the easy route. Always. They always want the maximum benefit for the least amount of work. Quick and easy thinking is their model. So, if I know that you have this huge conscience, this huge sense of conscientiousness, or that you hate to feel guilty about anything, and that you hate to look bad, the easiest thing for me to do to have my way with you is to make you feel guilty, or to make you feel bad about yourself. Piece of cake. So those are the two favorite ones. Now, just try using those same tactics on the character disturbed people. You can guilt them to your blue in the face. Or shame them till you're blue in the face. And that's diagnostic because it doesn't work. <laughs> so those are the two favorites. But playing the victim, uh having a reason, an excuse for all kinds of misbehavior. And 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 in psychology, we used to regard many of these tactics as unconscious ego defense mechanisms. We used to think the person didn't really realize what they were doing. And so we thought we had to point it out to them. And mm-hmm. I have to tell you that 90% of therapists still do this. It drives me just a little bats. Yeah. Because we waste time and energy many times trying to point out to people who already know what they're doing and why they're doing it.
0: Right. They're conscious of it already. Yes. That's what most people don't understand.
1: And they're doing it because for the simplest reason ever, because it works. (laughs) Okay. No, it works
0: yeah, and so these are, you know, th- these are really good traits for people to just keep their eye on. And, you know, I think for me personally, I'm the classic sort of empath, was really, you know, soft and sweet and easy. And then I've gotten taken advantage of and had to learn the hard way. And so I thankfully have been able to develop boundaries, discernment, all of these other things to call in to help protect myself, mm-hmm. right. And so we we've covered some of them so far, but, When you speak to people maybe who are more empathic or compassionate and find themselves getting wrapped up in some of these relationships, what are some of the other things that they can develop inside themselves? You can actually, if you want to go more into sort of boundaries or other things, you can. But what's your advice for them to focus on developing within themselves?
1: You know, this is probably going to sound a little trite, but it's another reason I wrote uh, Essentials for the Journey. Because the simple but profound answer is that love is the answer, but it has to start with you. When you come to appreciate who you really are, I mean, at the core, I I don't mean the, the face that you put on or the person that you think you have to be to the rest of the world to be worth a crap in their eyes. I'm talking about the person that you are at the core. And you understand what love really is, not all of its masquerades, not attraction, not interest. Oh my goodness, don't get me started on people confusing interest for regard. Somebody's really interested in me, that must mean they really care. No, they can be interested in you for a lot of reasons, and you might feel very, very flattered at that interest, but that doesn't mean they have even the remotest capacity necessarily to love you. But once you understand what real love is, and you properly love who you are, then you start setting boundaries. You start looking at things differently. You start being a little bit more discriminating. You start, as you would for your own child, you're not just going to throw your child to the wolves. You're going to be careful about the environment you're throwing them into, and you're going to watch out for them. You have to learn to do that for yourself. And sadly, sadly, really high empath, folks, sometimes are slow to do that. They want to take care of everybody else instead of themselves first.
0: Yes, this is the pattern. I'm so happy that you said that because that is the number one thing that I've seen when especially I work with a lot of female clients who are kind of past versions of me. And this is the thing that we have to come back to time and time again. Do you love yourself? Do you think that you're worthy of having a partner that treats you? In a healthy way. And so many women who come to me are just settling for behavior that is really not okay. And they're putting up with a lot. And so like you said, it's the classic kind of um, neurotic or empath that will Put everybody first, maybe not think of themselves. And also, like we were mentioning earlier, have so much love and care for these people that they think that, you know, something must be going on inside them. There must be some things happening underneath the surface that are causing them to have this behavior towards me. And so their compassion for them kind of overrides their own self-protection.
1: Yes. Well, if you think that highly empathic relationship partners are bad at this. Therapists are
0: worse.
1: I'm serious. I, I, I Na- naturally empathic, naturally empathic many times, wanting only to see the best, wanting to care perhaps too much. If you think relationship partners are too tolerant of misbehavior, think of what goes on in a therapy office, especially if there's a character disturbed person in there and the aggrieved partner who's finally managed to cajole them into coming in for some assistance. We were trained as empathic counselors not to make judgments, to let people own their feelings, all this kinds of stuff. Unfortunately, in today's time and age, and with how much character dysfunction there is out there, you cannot not set boundaries, even in the therapy room. Right. Some behaviors are simply not okay. I've observed far too many sessions as a as a uh, as an adjunctive consultant. People, that's one of the kinds of training that I've done. Far too many times where the very thing that the person has brought in as the complaint happens right then and there during a session and gets a pass.
0: Yeah, right. Well. In I- other
1: words, it gets reinforced.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, I can share actually a a, a short story of when I first pro- started practicing as a psychologist, I was actually in the high schools of Los Angeles, specifically in South Central. And I would get sent all of the troublemakers, which mostly were boys. And I had, you know, unconditional positive regard for all of them. And and they just absolutely loved me. And yet I realized that I was actually enabling their bad behavior. So many times they would come into my office just to get out of class and I was being taken advantage of. And so it's that classic thing where I had to learn to... Mm -hmm you know, set loving boundaries with them. And they didn't like it at first, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's kind of like, you know, therapists are are usually drawn to this field because they're compassionate, they're empathetic. And so the training a lot of times um, does just encourage more of that. But I actually, I just want to shift a little bit into um, cognitive behavioral therapy and treatments that really work. And mm-hmm. so I know that you mentioned this, um, you know, in your two books that I read in Sheep's Clothing, Character Disturbance, that CBT is a better approach as opposed to traditional psychotherapy. Have you noticed, um, you know, those books were written a while back. Where are we right now on treating this on a larger scale?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, we know what works uh, in a lot of areas, Um, not just CBT. Uh, You know, there's a specialized form of, of cognitive behavioral therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, and the research is very clear that with a certain group of folks, actually with more more than this certain group of folks, but especially with uh, individuals who have borderline personality disorder, this is definitely the treatment of choice. Uh, But here's the problem. We know what works, and many times clinicians will say that that's what they do. But many times when you really scrutinize what it is they actually do, you find out they're not really doing it. And that's the case with CBT. Most clinicians have been so married for so long to the talk therapy uh, metaphor or paradigm where they want people to understand, to see, to be enlightened, to gain what we call insight. Most uh, the therapists, even when they say they are doing CBT, they leave the B out of it, and they do CT. Mm-hmm. They try to reason with people, try to get them to see. And there's an axiom. I didn't invent this phrase, but it's really perfectly said by whoever said it first. It's a lot more efficacious. That means powerful and effective to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting, which means most therapists waste too much time and too much energy trying to get people to see what they probably already see. What they really need to do more than anything else in that powerful potential moment in time is invite a different behavior And then reinforce the heck out of it. Yeah. Over and over and over again. It's like raising a four-year-old, unfortunately, at a moral level.
0: Yes, it is. It is like raising a four-year-old. And you know, I I remember too that behaviorism was kind of frowned upon, you know, as being too robotic and all of this stuff. But I do totally agree with you. And that was another big aha moment for me as well, is that this behavior reinforcement is absolutely the way that you would work with this and mm-hmm. people um there's something that that doesn't quite feel right sometimes to people about it but i mean this is this is something that is a powerful behavior modif- modifier for people
1: and let, let me give you an example it just popped into my head i may some say something like this john um uh, Rehearse for me. What would it sound like if you say to Anne what you just said about that altercation that you had? What would it sound like if you made an apology for it that didn't include any, mis- any minimization? Of course, he knows what that is, uh, of the seriousness of what you did, and didn't include any blaming of her. He knows what victim blaming is, too uh in the statement what would it what would it sound like to just rehearse for me what you did just said a moment ago but in a different way that wouldn't have any tone of it wasn't so bad and it was partly her fault what would that sound like do it for me now because you know what if change doesn't happen now even a small change if it doesn't happen right now It ain't going to happen. Yeah. And that's the power. You called it a a little bit ago. I loved it. You said loving boundaries. Mm -hmm. That's the power of real love in the moment. Yes. Real love doesn't let kids do that kind of stuff. Little kids, little four-year-old kids that haven't formed a conscience yet. Real love doesn't let them get away with that.
0: Exactly. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And I still see this is something people really have to sit with, especially parents. And also having worked in the school system, I mean, there's so many teachers, administrators that are actually um enabling bad behavior. And even in, in Los Angeles, you know, there was a lot of, um, this is a whole other conversation, but it, there was a leaning more towards really creating safe spaces for everybody to come and talk about their feelings. And there was a more of a reliance on that than there was on consequences. And so people were getting it doing all sorts of bad things and they, um, you know, weren't getting there, there weren't consequences for the behavior. And so I feel The school system definitely has to grapple with this, you know, this overall concept. And wow, I can't believe this. We're almost actually at an hour. So we'll start to wrap up soon. But if you think about this whole conversation, is there any final words that you would have knowing that the audience listening is primarily women who are on the more empathic side? Do you have any last words for them?
1: Trust your gut. If you're having that crazy feeling, trust your gut judge actions, not intentions. It's all about the behavior. The old school of psychology over over overtaught you to look for the stuff that might be underneath it, motivating it. Don't play shrink and don't second guess. Judge the behavior on its own merits and love yourself. Set those loving boundaries. We live in a different age right now. It's an age of massive entitlement and relativism, and people haven't grown up. Uh, we've given four-year-olds keys to the car, and they're irresponsible in their driving. Um, we need to do better. So trust your gut. And uh, there's a resource. You can go to my blog. Thousands of free articles for you, <laughs> uh, not to mention the five books, and um, And I really have to say, I want to engage in some shameless self-promotion. Essentials for the journey is my life's work. And it's meant for everybody. It's meant for those who have unfortunately been in a relationship with a person that never really properly grew up, as well as somebody who's come to that point in their life where they think, you know what, maybe I should grow up. Now, how do I do it at this stage of the game? How do I go about it? So I wrote it for both folks.
0: Oh, excellent. I'm so happy that you talked a little bit about that book. I just got it and I can't wait to read it. I always recommend In Sheep's Clothing and Character Disturbance to my clients and it's helped so many people to wake up. So in the show notes, I'll post links to all of your books, your website, your blog. And is there anything else that you have coming up and in your work that you want to share with us
1: about Uh no, not in particular. The audiobook for Essentials and the Journey should be out just after Labor Day. I'm anxious about that. Uh, I I uh I know a lot of folks who like to listen in their car and stuff like that. And uh the first two books are out on audiobook, but not uh, essentials. So it's being completed as we speak.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, thank you so much again for being on. This was such an incredible. Thank you. I'm just so honored that that you could be on. I know this conversation is going to help a lot of people. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps these conversations to get out to more people. I really appreciate it. And if you're somebody who could use support with love, sex, and relationships, I work with individuals, couples, and run groups. And so you can DM me on Instagram or just go to my website if you're curious about how we could work together.